begin. The Internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. Hey there friends, welcome to Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. My name is Evan Axel Anderson. And I'm David Ryan Anderson. And today we have a very special episode for you. What's special about today's episode? I regret to inform you all that today is our last episode. Is it? Of the season. Today is our season one finale, David. It's been a year. It's almost a year. It's not quite a year. Well, yeah, as of recording, it has not been a year, but hopefully by about the time that we actually release this episode, it'll be closer to a year. Can we get a little bit of, let's put a little fanfare in. So for this episode, we wanted to do something a little lighter. There's not going to be anything as heavy as ISIS recruiting tactics or like Nazis or Russian hacking or whatever. Yeah. So back when we started this podcast a year ago, I was very interested in other podcasts or YouTube videos or whatever that were kind of had a similar concept. And something that I ended up stumbling on was the kind of weird phenomenon of internet historians. Like, not people on the internet who do history, but people on the internet who document the history of online communities and things. And it's it has this weird, they're like folk histories. Yeah. Yeah, David sent me this stuff, and it fits very neatly into sort of like a theory of how the discipline of history kind of comes about. It's very it's very interesting. It's like watching a society develop the concept of how to record its own history, but it's just online, and you have yeah. communities that are like 4chan communities or Tumblr communities starting to document their own histories of who they are YouTube communities. Yeah, of like, here is the history of our trolling this one person or trolling this one forum or trolling this one game. But like, yeah, like these are the histories of our people and they're they're starting to figure out how to do that. As wars and conquests were to the Romans or to the Mongols or to the Russians, trolling is to the 4chan and 8chan communities. <laughs> it is, yeah. And, the, and the, these things are fascinating to listen to because they're a commodity to be consumed by an audience, like, you know, like, like on YouTube or whatever. But they're also these like weird mythic stories where it's like, this is the story of how 4chan created a bunch of racist avatars and right. trolled... Uh, an online video game for kids yeah. and and everybody tried to shut them down but nobody could do it the glorious 4chan users ended up victorious in the end and they had this thing shut down I mean, it lionizes, like, the people involved in these basically harassment sort of, like, campaigns, and it makes heroes, like, here is our Gilgamesh, you know, in this certain situation. If you don't know, sorry, 4chan is... It's a forum. It's it's a forum, yeah, where people can go there, they can just post anonymously and talk. A lot of stuff happens there. Yeah. We don't even have time. It It is the locus for much of the internet, sort of, like, more seedy and ridiculous events it's sort of the center of the internet where like internet culture would be born a lot of times like back in the day at least not so much anymore everything from lolcats to rick rolling any of these kind of memes they originate on 4chan right this was like the place to be if you wanted to like find out what's happening on the internet in the days before reddit and stuff like that so and and you've got there's a whole range of things like we're focusing on the 4chan harassment histories but right. you can find other histories on things like, remember Neopets? Here's what Neopets was to help you both remember, but also like fill in the gaps in your knowledge from, from back when that was a thing. Or, yeah, or like here's a biography of, you know, a YouTuber you like or something like that. Yeah, here's the biography and professional history of Philip DeFranco. Yeah, or like Jade Animations or something yeah, like or that. Yeah, or PewDiePie or whatever. Or PewDiePie. So this is all very interesting to us because part of what we do is talk about online communities and things. And it's very interesting to see how other people do that in weird other ways. I mean, we do more than just, we're not just chronicling the histories of of different groups and things. We're also offering a lot of analysis and, you know, our takes on on what these things are and how they work. Right. But I've become fascinated with this stuff. And I knew that I wanted this to be our season one finale for about the past year. And I'm just subscribed to all these things. I I watch them and listen to them basically for the past year, um, just 
seeing how they function. And uh, I, like I said, this is not a super a super deep episode. This is a bit of a lighter one. We might meander a bit and kind of talk about yeah. just how people even record their own histories in general online and, and things like that. There's a lot of stuff we wanted to kind of hit on, but kick back, relax. This is a really, I, I think this will be a fun, interesting topic to talk about. Let our nasally drones caress your earbuds as we talk about internet historians. So it's really interesting looking at these particular histories because they reflect sort of a, and my goal here isn't to be like demeaning, but like literally like a more primordial element of history. Like a, a basic version of what a history is. Yeah, or at least it reveals sort of like certain impulses that are necessary for like the production of histories in general and sort of like certain like attitudes that are necessary for really early histories. Just the the impulse to want to record things that happen for posterity. I mean, if you look at the very first Western historian, you look at Herodotus writing for the Greeks, his history starts off with basically his purpose. Basically, what he says is that this is the history of an inquiry of Herodotus of Halicarnassus, so that things done by man not be forgotten in time, and that the great and marvelous deeds, some done by Greeks, some done by barbarians, uh, do not lose their glory, including uh, what was the cause of them waging war on each other. So right there, he's just saying, like, the reason why I'm writing this is so that we don't forget what happened. And sort of his methodology in going about this is just recording just stuff that people tell him. Herodotus was well-traveled, so, I mean, he traveled to a lot of these places, and he just listened to the folk tales of these people and wrote down the stories. And often, most of the time, his attitude towards, like, we have multiple stories about this one thing, like, here is a building, or here is a monument, or here is a group of people, or here is, like, a word— and I'll give you sort of like a series of different etymologies or histories or like backgrounds on certain things. And I'm not going to decide between them. I'm just going to present them to you. Interesting. Okay. And this is sort of interesting for what we're talking about with the internet historians, because a lot of them are just relaying to you a series of events as is understood or remembered by that particular historian or maybe by that community. And it isn't incredibly critical. None of these histories are critical of their sources or are even critical of the thing that's being discussed like so should we do examples first should we like actually tell people what, what kind of things we're talking yeah. about yeah, yeah so there are a few different types of these online historians you've got the kind of people like we were talking about in the intro where you know they'll be like we're from 4chan this is how we harassed a dude on the internet and how glorious it was let me tell you about it it's like an official court history of the community like yes we did things it's we did this propaganda. and it was great yeah. It, it is almost. I mean, it's made by, for, and biased towards the people glorified in the video. Yeah. So you've got you've got historians like that. You've also got other kind of historians who are completely impartial. There is no takeaway. There is no greater purpose to what they're doing except to tell you this is literally what went down, and I'm documenting it for right. posterity. Or at least their biases aren't as overt as somebody who is making a 4chan video, you know, it... At least they try to suppress them to have a level of objectivity that you can say, okay, yeah, I can trust this video. And usually what they do is a little bit more journalistic, I've noticed. Yeah. They'll look for other sources and things and, and like actual articles and, and, and histories and whatever. Not or like interviews, interviews and right. yeah, uh, like news segments and things like that. The interesting thing about these histories is that they will document the events, but they have very little to really say about it other than just along the way to sort of glorify what has happened or to ultimately at the very end of like a 30 or 40 minute documentary to just say. And the reason why I even made this thing is because it is a good example of X yeah. and that's it. And it's really just sort of a rationale for why did I even engage in this project to begin with. So justifying why you made it in the first place? Yeah. 
There is a, a weird, I don't know why this is so popular, but there's a guy named Christian Weston Chandler, mm. CWC. Quick. That's his acronym, no, his uh, yeah, initials, whatever. His, his branding, he has a lot of branding. This guy is a really popular topic for internet historians, and I do not know why this person of all people, I mean, he's a very, he's a unique person. Essentially, I think it's just so bizarre that it's like, I gotta do, say something. I have to like remember this thing to laugh about with people who are involved in it later or something along those lines. Well, so here, here's here's who this guy is. He's autistic to some degree. I, I don't know if... He says he's high-functioning autistic. Yeah. yeah. You know, he like lives at home with his parents. He would make his own comic books about a character named Sonichu, who is a mix of Sonic the Hedgehog and Pikachu. And he was just generally this really socially awkward guy. He would go out on his college campus holding a sign that says that he's single and he's looking for... A boyfriend-free woman. A boyfriend-free woman. So, yeah. like, he's like, I'm too socially awkward to engage with women, so I'm just going to hold a sign and hope that they come to me. So somebody found this guy in public holding the sign, decided to kind of, like, investigate who he was... Because he's very open and trusting, this this Christian Weston Chandler yeah, guy. to a fault. Right. So this dude, Christian Weston Chandler, got discovered by 4chan. They found his comics. He would publish them online. And basically they started pretending to be fans of his comics to like get his personal information and spread it right. around the internet to harass right. this guy and humiliate this guy. And they would just rile him up. They would like catfish him before that, that yeah. term existed to try to get things from him, just information. They would convince him to do videos and he's extremely open. He would, he like gave out all his personal information to these people. So they had years worth of material. Like this went on for like a decade. And this dude was just a perfect target for them. He's extremely socially awkward and he just doesn't seem to get out much. So like he also had his own problems with like, he was extremely easy to, to enrage. He was very, you know, like he attacked somebody at GameStop because they wouldn't let him protest that Sonic the Hedgehog, they like changed the color of his arms in the new right. Sonic the Hedgehog game. Yeah. It, it, like stuff like that. So like this dude isn't like a perfect angel or anything, but like that does not matter. Like yeah. an entire online community developed websites and videos and whatever and faked being people to harass this guy. And he, this was such a popular pastime that we just now have, if you type his name into YouTube or whatever, you're going to get endless documentaries not just like a 10 minute video i mean legitimate hour-long hour-long documentaries chronicling all all the different like chapters in the life of christian weston chandler going back to childhood they found videos of him as a kid it is it is like bizarrely and creepy like to what lengths these people have like investigated this guy and to be fair, he is a very open place to mine this sort of information anyway. He's very open with all of this stuff. No, yeah, he, he was an easy target. And the amount of information they got out of him and stuff like is enough to fuel several documentaries worth. Right. Like, I, I can't get over this. So this is one example. This is probably my favorite example in terms of like, they're, they're legitimately histories that are being written here. Like, I'm not exaggerating or anything like that. Yeah. But you can find other examples of stuff like this. There's a lot of YouTube channels out there. There's, there's a channel literally called The Internet Historian who is a guy who appears to be from 4chan and he will do videos about you know different 4chan harassment type things that they would do but he will not just give you the history of them he'll also give you tips for how to engage with them right or there will be sort of a, a culminating point in the video where he will discuss the modern implications of this history and sort of like a call to action in yeah. some sense, yeah. Which is not just a history. Like, like, yeah, it is like a propagandistic, like, piece. It's, it's, all, it, we're talking about uh, the Christian Weston Chandler thing. And the only documentary that I watched in full of it was one by Down the Rabbit Hole by a guy named Frederick Knudsen. And even his is neutral to a point where he's like, this guy was kind of asking for it a little bit, like by being so weird and so creepy and uh, these sort of different things, which, you know, that's not as obvious as the internet historian who glorifies the entire like harassment sort of like campaign throughout its, you know, discussion. It reveals a certain attitude that I think all historians ultimately have, which is they have an opinion and 
a history necessarily is a narrative that you're constructing to push a certain attitude or a certain opinion you have. And ultimately, all of these reveal sort of a very positive attitude towards the events that they're talking about yeah. to a certain degree. Like one historian that David sent me some links about was a guy named uh, the Ferret's Foot or Foot of a Ferret. Excuse I love me. that we're calling him uh, one, one historian named Foot of well, a Ferret. <laughs> one internet historian, one channel, I guess, uh, on YouTube is Foot of a Ferret. And most of the internet stuff they put up are biographies of YouTubers and a lot of times in the title you'll see featuring that YouTuber. So ultimately it's they're autobiographical essentially and there's no you know critical element to the sources that they're using which is fine. Nobody's going to yell at you about your PewDiePie biopic that you're making. That's well, like, people might have a PewDiePie. True. At this point, he is legitimately like headline news. So yeah, that's it could be seen as just a, a puff piece for him or something. But I cannot get over the fact that this guy is chronicling. I, I forget exactly what his tagline is, but I believe he says just like the histories of the YouTubers that you love or something like that. Yeah. These are historical records. Like that's how he treats these things. And it's so crazy to me that YouTubers are being recorded. Recorded, like documented as like like for Charlemagne or uh, I mean yeah, Kublai Khan or something, but even even on like a smaller level, just like like a like a folk hero or something like right, that. Right, sure. Kind of, like these are people who are important to a certain community. It, it could be a very large community in the case of somebody like PewDiePie, or they could be smaller ones. But you can see his bias in the fact that yeah, he doesn't look critically at any of the people he's actually talking about, and also all these people are his friends. Like most of the biographies he's doing are just of other people on YouTube that he's like friends with. Like yeah. he has a biography of the odd ones out and the odd ones out does like stuff for him all the time on the video. Wait, he did a history of 2017, like YouTube history of 2017. Yes. Yeah. Which was really interesting. Essentially, he's just sort of like, hey, I'm friends with this person. I got an interview of them, like basically where I will just talk about, you know, how they got their start. And w what this kind of stuff shows is that these are histories being done by the people themselves. And we talk you know, I, I feel like we just bang this drum all the time that internet life is real life. Internet communities are real communities. The things that happen here have actual ramifications on the lives of people. And I feel like this is just further evidence of that, that you have these people who people make histories because they believe that they're recording something that is important or at least important to them. It's a way of validating their experiences or the experiences of their community. Like some of these people, I don't I, like. I don't know if these people all experience these things firsthand, but at the very least, they can easily go and talk to somebody who did. Like they, they these are people within their network that they can talk about this right. with. And yeah, it's a way of of saying like I live my life here with this community online, and I need to record this because this is something that is important to me and to a lot of people. And it, you know, it's a way of validating that. Yeah, you're you're not gonna find any history, at least outside of the past few centuries about something that the historian doesn't actually care about. And I would argue even today, you know, you might have somebody in the United States writing a history about Southeast Asia, but it's still something that's valuable to them for one reason or another, because they enjoy the culture that they're discussing, that they think the events that they're recording are important, sort of as a social call to action or something along those lines. So when you see, yeah, people on the internet making histories, it's because they believe that one, they have a group, a society there, a culture there, that is valuable enough to record for posterity because there is going to be an internet posterity, you know? Yeah. We're at the point where there are people phasing out of YouTube that are going on to other things, to other media jobs, and now you have a second generation of YouTube personalities that have been growing up in the past few years. So there is a posterity of internet, like internet children, essentially, that are growing up in this society. New that generations that are being shaped by the stories of their forefathers. Kind right. Of no, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, And I'm that's how they're being serious. educated how to conduct themselves on the internet. There is a, a fascinating phenomenon is nostalgia for early internet. And by early internet, I mean like... Early 2000s. 2000s. <laughs> I mean, I guess like the 90s too, but really yeah. like 2000s like culture. And that is so bizarre to me, partially because it's like, oh, wow, I'm old. But also because... I was around for that. Well, also because like it resembles something like in the 80s, you had this like 50s nostalgia for things like yeah. like grease or, or hairspray or, or like today with things like Stranger Things or all this like synthwave music. Yeah. Yeah. that we're getting late 80s early 90s sort of nostalgia yeah yeah and you're you're getting similar phenomenons just for internet culture 
of the era, or at least not of that era, but like a little, but like early internet culture is having that same experience. And you're starting to see these like Gen Z people online who are like, I wish that things were like that before, like everything became corporate internet back in like web 1.0. Yeah. Yeah, Where like you just made your own website and you like did whatever you wanted out there and and stuff like that. Nostalgic for the websites where it's all just blocks of text and like bad GIFs and broken JPEGs. Yeah. Just horrible HTML formatting (laughs) and stuff. Everything's neon. So it's this weird thing where these stories, they're not only serving the function of let me record the history and glory of my people, but also like come children hear about who we used to be and let this shape your idea of who you should be moving forward because there is still a fortune like in spite of the fact that 4chan is dying and all the chans we're gonna do an episode sometime about the chan websites because it is it's its own massive thing right we could do a whole podcast about them, but they're... Chancast. This, this type of community, the 4chan community, in spite of the fact that it's definitely not as prominent as it used to be, or at least as like disseminated to the point where it's not as centralized as it used to be. Right, yeah. You get a lot of people who just actively are like longing for those days when it's like everybody could get on this one forum on this website, like, you know, a handful of websites. And we all knew the rules for how to communicate and stuff like that. The rules are, there are no rules. Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, that's, yeah. So I'm very fascinated to see in the future just how web communities do this. Like we're saying, this is a generational thing and like behaviors and, and ways of thinking are being passed from generation to generation online. And it's so weird to me. Okay, like like for example, this is one of my favorite things is I've discovered there is a very active and thriving online community for To Catch a Predator. The Dateline show with Chris Hansen where they would set up stings with the police to catch potential child predators. Yeah, basically like more than a decade old now. It started more than a decade ago. I, it ended roughly a decade ago. Yeah. But there's a massive online community for this stuff. I mean, there, there's only so many episodes that they ever made of this thing. Right. It wasn't like a very long-running show. And it, it wasn't very frequent either. Right. These were news shows that they would produce every every year or so or whatever. Yeah, every every so many episodes of Dateline, they would have a special. About this, yeah, because they were popular. They made maybe 10 or something like that. There are channels just devoted to adding commentary to these things. Right. There are channels devoted to finding the entire transcripts and phone calls that these organizations had with the Predators and then revealing them. There are fan communities. I mean, fan is kind of a weird way of phrasing it, but there are communities devoted to, they surround different predators themselves. I mean, the communities don't exist to like venerate them though. They exist to like mock them. Right, yeah. And they go to massive lengths to do this. There are people, they'll make their avatar and their name like online. They'll make it like the name of one of these predators. And then they'll just go to other, to catch a predator media and they'll go out and like pretend to be the predator and be like, hey guys, like stop, stop messing with me. And then like other people who are pretending to be other predators will come in and they'll like get in fights and stuff. Or, or there, there are some videos where they'll get the transcripts and then read the transcripts in the voice of the predator. Like they'll have people who are right, known do for doing impressions of them. But one of the weirdest things, i sorry, this whole community is so bizarre to me. Yeah. Uh, there's also videos that are super cuts of like the... Like the a- the actresses who who pretend to be oh. who pretend to be underage, right? Yeah, they make super cuts of them and stuff, and they're like, "Yeah, we love we love her and whatever." It's just like a little weird, but I do not understand this community. But yeah. probably one of the weirdest things this is something I showed Evan is that for one of these channels, this guy made a yeah. super cut of all of his fans doing his intro, and if you look at the fans and the videos they sent in, a lot of these people are young. Like I guarantee that they were not fans of this show when it aired originally, if they were even alive when it first aired. Yeah. There's a whole new generation of To Catch a Predator fans whose experience with the show has just been provided to them by the original fans of the show, which right. is so crazy to me. Yeah, it's like I was a kid when I read, I don't know, Catcher in the Rye or some school classic. I was like, I'm going to give it to the next generation. They're going to enjoy it. Yeah, or like, kids, I really enjoyed this movie when I was a kid. I'm going to have you watch it. And that's internet culture pedagogy or something. Like, it's it's so interesting. Yeah, this show is old enough that several of these predators are dead today. Yeah. And I know this because I've seen videos where they just go through and they're like, what happened to this predator after, you know, the show? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are they doing today? Literally, what's happening to them right now? And a lot of them are dead. And it's like, yeah, good. Good, they're dead. (laughs) Slightly related to this, like how stories are passed down. I love how urban legends have evolved. It's like urban legends have existed as a sort of 
modern folklore that kids or teenagers will tell each other. And they're, they're always like scary stories that have sort of weird life lessons, I guess, or at least instill healthy fears about the modern world. I guess, is is the value of them. But they're always, like, relevant to where you are. So, like, if you're in the forest, you say, hey, guys, you hear the story of the hook-handed killer who escaped from that mental institution a few miles away? Like, be, be careful, be alert, listen to him. Sometimes you can hear his hook dragging. Is that how the story goes? I actually don't remember. <laughs> if you're in the suburbs, usually the, the stories are about, like, babysitters alone getting creepy phone calls from inside the house. And in the city, it'll be like sewer alligators or something. Like, don't flush your pets down the toilet is the <laughs> lesson there. But so many kids are growing up online now, and they're developing their own urban legends about, like, scary experiences that you have on the internet. And they don't call them urban legends anymore. Now they're creepypastas, which we talked about in our second episode, if you want to mm, yeah. go listen to that. But a lot of these stories are about teenagers who stumbled into the wrong chat room on the dark web and now... They're involved in, like, digital cabals of people who make snuff films or whatever. And these people are like, like, they're like, who are you? And the teenagers try to shut down the computer really quick because they realize that they've seen something that they shouldn't. But it's too late. The stranger's already traced their IP address <laughs> and they hunt them down in real life. And, like, these stories are all usually dumb in the way that, like, all urban legends are dumb. Right. I and mean, they fill some kind of need, clearly. And I... Just think that that's hilarious. Like, these stories are so popular, they actually made... Uh, there's some movies about them. I, Unfriended, I think they're called, are, are based on stories like this. Anyway, this, this is another example of this stuff. Like, it's this is so bizarre to me and fascinating. But So one thing you said before, Evan, that I'm interested in is you said that a lot of this stuff is primordial history. Like, this is a very basic form of history. What would mm. what would a more developed version of these histories look like? Like, what's something that might we might see in the future from this? So the thing that these channels and these videos, what a lot of these remind me of is, for at least Western history, in the medieval period, you had a type of historical writing that was called chronographies or annals. And essentially what it did is it just recorded literally like events that occurred. And every year, like, here is what happened this year in this particular topic. Here's what happened this year, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, there was no commentary. There is no judgment call or even an analysis of what is going on. It's literally just the facts or the facts as presented, sort of different like data points, things like that. Whereas when you look at a lot of history today, or even if you look at other historians from a period before that where they're actually looking at events and analyzing why things happened. Like the second historian that people consider being sort of the founders of the historical craft uh, is Thucydides, wrote about the Peloponnesian War. And his goal is a little more ambitious than Herodotus's in the sense that his attitude was, I want to record this thing that happened in my lifetime. I'm going to use people's testimony that I can hear and I want to determine the facts about what happened. But also I'm going to analyze why did this war even occur? Because one of the things you want to learn about was why did Sparta and Athens even go to war in the first place? So there's another element of it where you're going from a desire to just record things that occurred just so we don't forget about them to we know about what happened. Now I want to understand why things happened. And there's a point where all of these internet videos and channels that are talking about the history of the internet are lacking a certain analytical quality. That's why I sort of talk about like, they're not critical of their sources or critical about the things they're even talking about. It's just, here is a narrative that I'm providing you. Boom, there you go. And there doesn't need to be any sort of analysis. Whereas here you can see in certain histories, sort of more scholarly people who actually know a little bit more about methodology. I don't, I don't know the backgrounds of any of these people on the internet who are making these history videos. I, I have no idea. My my sense is that, you know, they're, they're people from the community and they're like, I actually want to record this stuff and just write about it. There's no understanding of like, what does historical method tell us about how I should go about doing this, which is fine. Nobody's going to criticize them for that. But at I the end will. of the day, when we talk about, yeah, we, we are right now. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about like, what is history in like scare quotes, we're talking about sort of the attitude of you want to not only record what happened, but also get at the reason why things happened. And a lot of these aren't quite at that point yet. Right. Why did 4chan decide to create a bunch of racist caricatures in a children's video game? Right. No, exactly. But the interesting thing is that we are kind of moving in that direction, but it's not from the internet community. I mean, you've got people like Angela Nagel who are writing histories of the internet and sort of determining how did these things metastasize to the point where now it is in the mainstream of culture. 
that is more of a history history. Yeah. But her primary identity doesn't reside in I am a YouTuber or I am a 4chan person or something like that. I mean, yeah. she's a journalist. She wor- works for Baffler. So saying that the internet community is making its own histories in very rigid definition of it isn't quite true, but they're moving in that direction. I think it shows an impulse that reveals that this is a very real community and this is a community that has a culture, has a sense of itself. It has self-awareness about its own role in society, which is really interesting. Yeah, and I'm interested in the idea that, you know, we'll get to like the third generation 4chaners who are going to start putting out histories of like, these are the stories of our fathers and how they failed us and and how we can be different now and whatever, you know, like they assembled their little racist avatars in the form of a swastika in a children's game. <laughs> what they really should have done was that what I who knows what right. third generation 4chan will believe about itself and and their ancestors. It's so weird to think of. Or, or or even people who are like, like we, we track our legacy to the website of 4chan. We move from 4chan to this subreddit. Yeah, or even, yeah, or like origin mythologies. Yeah. Like that's another thing that's really interesting. There's a book by Benedict Anderson called Imagined Communities. And essentially he talks about sort of the origins of national consciousness. Like why do Germans think of themselves as Germans? Or sure. why do French people think of themselves as French people? You know, why do the Chinese think of themselves as a single nation? And what's the historical precedent for that? And a lot of it has to do with just origin myths. Like, where do your people come from? What sort of elements make your people one thing? Yeah. And that's very ancient. People have had sort of ideas of like, oh, we come from one ancestor, and that is the ancestor that from whom we get our name, and his name is Roman Romanonese. Like basically, that's where the Romulus and Remus story comes from. Is like right. it is we are the descendants of this guy named Roman dude, yeah, Mister Roman. Ro- Romulus founded Rome, right? Yeah, little Roman guy essentially is what Romulus means. Yeah, and the idea is that you have a particular like person you can all track yourselves to, and it builds a sense of community that way. So when the four chaners start laying like claim to like there was one original four chan guy who started it all, and we can I all mean, draw our roots from this guy. I mean, we actually can't do that. Like, there's the guy who created. 4chan. Right. The point where like there is a sense of community built around that, that's the point where you're really getting to like almost a nation building. And that I think when it gets to that point, it's that is the ultimate culmination of like you have a very distinct community and society and culture here. That'll be really bizarre because uh, websites are not just like land or anything like that. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're commodities and stuff. Right. This idea of looking at your past, analyzing your your own histories and stuff, like, this is not just something that we see for online communities even, like, I don't know how many websites and, and Facebook pages there are about, like, if you're a 90s kid, you remember this, or, like, am I the only one who remembers zoo books or pogs or whatever yeah like the internet is perfectly designed to cater to nostalgia and just record things and eliminate time mm. Like, our sense of when things happened. Like, I used to watch Beast Wars as a kid. If I want to, I can pull up the entire series on Netflix and watch it in one evening for the rest of my life if I want. I could buy the toys on eBay. I can be a part of communities that talk about the characters and break them down and handle and fan theories and blah, 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 whatever. Right. I can see fan art for it. Like, even though Beast Wars ended when I was 10 or whatever, it is not gone away. It still exists online. And I'm also really curious how that has never been true for human history. If something was gone, it was gone. Like, there, you don't lose yeah. things on the internet anymore, at least not at this point. Like, who knows, you know, when the internet's stuffed with, like, generations of content. But yeah. as of right now, at least, like, our sense of time that things, that things go away or are eliminated. Like, I'm also really curious how that affects how communities develop. Relics don't exist anymore. There's nothing forgotten that you can rediscover because everything is not forgotten, essentially. The internet houses everything. Like, even websites that no longer exist, you go on the Wayback Machine and there is some... Sure, you'll try to... There's some iteration of it that you can look at. Some Yeah, somebody saved it somewhere or whatever. Right. I mean, and, and obviously, like, that's not to say nothing ever changes or anything like that. Like, there are people who are nostalgic for early internet, like we said. Right. But I do think the internet has a way of... I, I can't think of how else to say it, except that it just... It can eliminate the passage of time. When something is there, it can be permanent. And you can come to something 10 years later as if it was brand new. And I guess my concern is, what will that do for progress? Will Mm. this make it easier to ignore new ideas and stay insulated? Like, how does this change the way that we experience history? And I don't mean like ancient history. I just mean like our own histories, like a few years ago, like things that happened a decade ago. 
Yeah, well, I think that there is a there is a, a skewed element to it, though, because you reduce the passage of time, but you can also reduce the critical nature of hindsight, I think, to a certain extent. So we're talking about these internet historians and the fact that you can go back and relive the glory days of 4chan. But much like any history written by the person who was involved in it, they're going to, if they if they have a positive attitude towards the events being talked about, they're going to glorify it and they're going to present a skewed image of what that even is. So like if you have a, a modern Gen Zer, uh, zombie generation uh, child... Uh, who is nostalgic for the 90s. They're not going to be nostalgic for, oh, long load times or, you know, dial-up and things like that. They might be nostalgic in the sense that it's like, oh, it was so quaint. Right. You're going to be looking at it all through rose-tinted goggles. Goggles? Glasses. You're going to be looking at it through rose-tinted glasses, and you're only going to be seeing the positive elements of things. I mean, that, that happens in history a lot. Just you look back on a previous culture or previous time, even in your own life, and you're going to look at it nostalgically saying like, oh, it was nice when the internet didn't make things confusing, or it was nice when commuting and work didn't draw the family apart from each other. You know, those are the things you're going to focus on in earlier times in history instead of, oh, wasn't it nostalgic when, you know, there was like civil rights abuses in this particular country, or wasn't it nice when the world was at war? You know, you're not going to be nostalgic for those particular Yeah, like, like, oh, the 50s were such a quaint time back before... We had equal rights. Right, yeah. You're only going to focus on things about it that you actually liked. Actually, well, we're talking about the internet, so maybe there are people on there who are like, I loved back when there was killing in the World War, or I liked it when there wasn't equal rights. Right. But the point being that we should be wary when we say that internet completely nullifies the passage of time because those things still have effects on how we view events. Like, what was it? We watched Blade Runner and you and dad were like, what? Because I'd never seen it before until we went to go see the new Blade Runner movie. Yeah. And we watched the old one. And at the end, you guys were like, what did you, guys, what did you think? I was like, I don't know. I didn't really like it. And you guys were like, what? But it's because you were viewing it in a certain context that. that gave you an opinion of it that you're holding today. Whereas now I'm viewing it in a very different context and I view it differently. Yeah, right. I, I saw it when I was a kid and there's been literally decades of movies responding to that movie and remixing its ideas in new, interesting ways and building a new cultural context that if you watch the movie today completely changes how you experience it. So for me, your dad, when we watch Blade Runner, I think we were able to mentally put ourselves back into that original context, but you can't do that. Right. You're actually in a different moment of history, even if it's just a few decades different, and that has totally changed how you can appreciate it and even what you see as valuable in it, I think. And it's not just for you. I mean, this is really common. Blade Runner is one of these movies, I think, that if you haven't seen it by the t like as a kid, it's kind of too late to really appreciate it because it was so influential that everybody tried to copy it, and now it almost seems basic and boring by comparison. At least, I mean, I don't see it that way, but I understand why people see it that way. Yeah. And basically, if I'm understanding you, just like with the movie Blade Runner— even old ideas will never truly be immune to aging right. because they're going to be bouncing off of other ideas and changing the world around them. And it will inevitably create a new context for us to experience them. So in a sense, the idea of us being in a total bubble or insulated can't be possible. I still think you're objectively wrong <laughs> about Blade Runner, though. I, uh, my, I think... One of the most interesting examples of the way that nostalgia colors our own our own past is vaporwave. Oh yeah, which is a it's it's this like eighties music type thing. It's almost like Muzak, like yeah. elevator music a little bit. It, it's it's all like gussied up a little bit. It's it's nicer, but it's got that synth that synth wave synth right. poppy kind of sound to it also. But it's more than just a musical genre because people also put out like music videos or images to associate a song with. And they're always these like old 80s, 90s, like CG. Well, or it'll be CG. It might be like commercials. It might be yeah. images of shopping malls or whatever. I mean, it might be McDonald's commercials or whatever. Yeah. But it's this very like corporate thing. And Vaporwave is entirely designed around this aesthetic that is nostalgic for a certain corporate image of what the world should look like that never existed. 
Yeah, that it never is, came to pass. It is all mediated through like advertising, essentially. Yeah, and it's fascinating because it's it's nostalgic for something that never even happened, and it's completely aware of that fact. There's a melancholy to this sense of at this particular time there were these particular images and things that evoke a sense of utopia and freedom and like youth, like eternal just happiness and all yeah. this stuff. And we know it's not real, but we long for that because it is so attractive to us. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's spawn. I mean, vaporwave is a huge thing online if you if you go look up vaporwave you're gonna find endless amounts of content for it and i mean all of this nostalgia talk that we're engaging in right now i think these internet historians feed into that desire for nostalgia you know people are looking for as much content about their bygone piece of internet culture that they've grappled onto that they want to know everything about it like the fact that we're talking about this massive and sort of sprawling to catch a predator fandom that produces so much content based on an original amount of content that's actually very small. Yeah. Just goes to show that they're going to mine as much as they can from this thing that they just really loved and they want to get as much content out of it as possible. And I think the internet historians fit into this because it's another way of mining more content from the things you love. You really enjoy Philip DeFranco. There's not enough Philip DeFranco content for the, for you out there. One one video a day is not enough. One video a day isn't enough. But you're, you're drawing to say like, listen, I want to know more about this than exists. So you're going to have other creators that You want to be immersed in it. You want to be immersed. You want to swim in a sea of Philip DeFranco. <laughs> and the internet historians fit into that where they say, you want to know more about this guy? Here is 10 minutes on just his background and things like that and how he got to where he is today. Here's an endless supply of 60-minute documentaries about a dude that we found on the internet. You're willing to watch five documentaries that are feature-length about just people harassing this guy because it's just so enthralling. My favorite of all these documentaries is one that sounds like it was made by a 13-year-old kid or something, where it ends with him saying, now that I've presented the facts, the side of the harat of the trolls and the side of Christian Weston Chandler, I leave it up to you, the audience, to decide who was the hero in the story and who was the villain. And it's like, I'm sorry, how is the villain the dude who got harassed by a literal, like, faceless mob of people who, like, released his personal information on the internet? But it's interesting because you can see that there is this, this desire to take the conversation and elevate it somehow, I think, mm. uh, because he is trying to be critical. He was trying to open it up and say, maybe this side is not the heroes. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Like, he's starting to kind of question it. Yeah. You know, there's there's something going on here. I think I think we probably will see more critical stuff like this. And it's cool. It's coming from this kid who clearly open to questioning it right it's it's a weird it's a weird phenomenon i don't see anybody really talking about this so i'm glad we got to we got to talk about it first <laughs> we, we should probably wrap this up but i think that the future is going to be so interesting i love this stuff and uh honestly i'm optimistic for the future there's a lot of justifiable alarm and anger right now i know we both feel it right but i remind myself that as humanity we've been making progress you think about standards of living, you think about war, you think about even the ability to just organize and call out injustices on a global scale. I think like on, on so many different fronts, we're making progress. I think I mean, that we're moving in the direction of empowering individuals. That may sound naive, and maybe it is naive, but I've tried being cynical for a long time, and cynicism is aimless it's defeat and complacency and hope is just the opposite it's an empowering activating force and i choose to focus on that i can't wait to see what these kids get up to it's going to be different it's going to be drastically different than what we're used to and it's going to be scary but i don't know i'm i'd like to see what the future generations decide to do with this uh, a computer is an educational device it is it is, in fact, a direct reflection of your, your own imagination, your own intelligence. And once you are given the freedom in which to create things and to see the, re the immediate response on the screen, then, uh, then, you become, then it becomes a very enjoyable experience. Uh, you go on to, to involve yourself in many other things. question of, uh, you know, what, what is all this microcomputer and computer business going to do to our society? Uh, the case is that we are humans and we are much more adaptable to, to our environment than the computer is to its own.
you look at society as simply the collective contribution of millions of human beings who carry in themselves certain power and influence and emotion. And every time you, you turn the switch off of one of those persons, you've dampened the glow. It's the fundamental question of whether this society is going to find a way to make itself as, in, as rich and as powerful and, if you will, as beautiful as potentially it can be. Well, that's a wrap, David. That is the first season. This is so, this is really cool. I'm, I'm like so excited that we actually, when we first set out, we said, let's commit to doing 10 episodes of this. We're going to say that that is one year. We're going to give ourselves to make 10 episodes of the show. I don't know if it sounds like it. I have no idea, honestly, how it sounds to people. Run it by me. There's a lot of research that goes into this show. Yeah. We do a lot of prep work for this. Like originally our plan was to do a, a two episodes every month. And we, we realized real quickly that we just cannot do that. I'm I'm a little frightened because I'm leaving in a week to start my PhD program. Yeah. And I'm afraid like how much is it going to cut into my free time? Well, and, and here's our, our big plan for season two moving forward. Yeah is we love doing the interview episodes. Interviews are great. And our goal, we have a few interviews lined up already. We have others that are kind of pending, but we would love for this show to become 90% interviews with people who are experts because we can do the research on this stuff, but we're always going to be coming at this from an outsider perspective. And mm-hmm. and that's why we tend to be talking about stuff that Evan and I already know about, and we can kind of come at this like with that knowledge firsthand. History and conspiracy theories, that's our thats our mainstay. Th- those aren't the only things, though, because we've also talked about like, stuff like Facebook and yeah. Russian hacking. and what, I mean, I guess Russian hacking, we that was an interview, though. Darn, we don't even have that. I, <laughs> I mean, we talked about all the stuff like Facebook, stuff like, like AI and Silicon Valley. Like These are things we're interested in right. from a social perspective. I'm real excited. Uh, a few, should, we, should we tease a few potential episodes we want to do? Sure. Well, I mean, we can definitely tell them the first thing we're going to do. <laughs> we get back yeah our first episode when we get back we are doing nazis revisited that's right a lot has happened on the nazi front <laughs> uh on on the western front a lot has happened we want to sort of update everybody about things both meat space and cyberspace that's been going on with the alt-right and just sort of talk a little bit more in depth about who they are you know when we first when we did our first nazi episode a year ago it was still a world that i think when you said there are a lot of nazis who are shaping policy or shaping public opinion a lot of guffaws people People were like, oh, you're being dramatic or like, you just don't like these people. You're calling them a Nazi because you just don't like them or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. You're being very polemical. Yeah. Like in the last year, I hope it's become much more obvious. Like we are talking about literal Nazis. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, we've got people like, I don't want to do a whole episode about it right now, but like, yeah, I mean, we've got people actually running for office who are just straight up like, I don't believe the Holocaust. I believe that there's a Jewish conspiracy or I just am a Nazi. Like they're not even hiding it at this point. Right. So that's an episode we want to do. Well, I, I'm potentially, I'm going to tease, we might be able to do an episode on Antifa about oh, uh, sure, anti-fascists. Yeah. yeah. Um, which would be awesome. I love that. I want to do an episode on incels as well. Yeah, I'd love to do an episode about incels. Uh, involuntary celibates for yeah. those of you who aren't hip to the lingo. Involuntary celibates. There's a lot to unpack there. I'd really like to do one about Gamergate. Yeah, because that, that really has sort of set off a lot of the anti-SJW sort of like activism from the internet, I think. Yeah, Gamergate was really a, a big moment of unifying a lot of different people. Some of them were literal Nazis. Some of them were just like... Upset gamers. Yeah, gamer dudes who don't have a very wide social circle outside of the gaming community, which is predominantly white guys. I mean, and then you also had people like Ayn Rand, objectivist, libertarian dudes. Like there, it was this coming together of a lot of different things that really ended up feeding into the alt-right yeah. later on. It bore out a community that has basically become the alt-right. Yeah, and that was something I got to experience firsthand because I have just been a person who follows. I just joined the alt-right uh, <laughs> and I was at the ground floor. But I mean, I my philosophy online has always been, I'm going to follow every different type of person I can and I want to see what they're doing. So I've been following Nazis for years. I've been following like Catholic monarchists are, are one who... Oh, yeah. they Nothing's really happened with them. They've kind of been absorbed into alt-right world. General sort of neo-reactionaries. Yeah. I was actually... This is this is sort of tangential, but in pre- preparing for this, ep- uh, the Nazi episode, I started reading Angela Nagel's book. 
And it's interesting. She does mention the dark enlightenment people. Oh, yeah, yeah. From last episode. In sort of like, here is sort of the milieu that like the alt-right sort of was birthed in. And yeah. I was like, oh, I talked about them. That's great. Anyway, yeah, we got a <laughs> Good lot. Good job, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, David. I mean, that, that's, that's great material to talk about. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so... Yeah, so going out, I mean, I guess we should just say thanks to everybody who's been listening to us. Thank you. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad we do this. This is one of my favorite things that I produce. I love talking about this stuff. I love getting to hang out with you, Evan. Your little bro. And it's going to be nice because, yeah, you're, I mean, you're going to be living in, in California starting next week. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's August 25th. I'm flying out the first, so it's fast approaching. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably be in California by the time this airs. Well, not apps. There's no way I'm getting out. We're too. <laughs> David episodes. worked real fast on this one. We, we record these in advance, so yeah. Yeah. There's no way that I'm I'm pumping out two episodes in the next week. <laughs> so yeah, it, the, it, this is a good excuse to uh, keep in touch and keep talking at least. No, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be in a new locale, a very studious locale, where I feel like we'll be able to pick up a lot of smart people who can talk intelligently on a lot of these topics. Yeah, you gotta pull your weight out there, Evan. Yeah, I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. My hope and dream. Well, that's it. Ten episodes, one year of Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. It's done. David's like almost doing it. like a Nixon sort of like, <laughs> what is it, like peace sign like thing. I'm doing a Steve Holt. Steve Holt. Steve Holt! Steve Holt, yeah. Anderson Brothers. We did it. All right. And uh, you know what? Let's just let's just have some nice, not vaporwave, but I got some synthwave music since we talked about it so much to play us out, reminisce, think about all the great times we had. Good times. This is it. Anderson Brothers 2018. Yo, I'm Evan Axel Anderson. And I'm David Ryan Anderson. Thank you for listening. Thanks. See you later, guys. Thanks so much. See you later, Space Cowboys. Like the dancing with bruises who gathers the cash when the music is through. No, she don't go back. I've come to look for America, too. When we stole the car on the 4th of July, I pawned my guitar and we drove through the night. I've come to look for America, too. Hey, everyone, it's David. The season is over, but of course, it's time for credits. For our music this episode, we've got three songs by the band The Midnight. Those songs are, in order, Vampires, Youth, and America 2. We also had a little snippet of Auld Lang Syne by the BBC Symphony Chorus. And as always, we're saying thanks to Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that we hear in our intro every episode. And that is the end of Anderson Brothers' The Internet Explorers Season 1. Thanks you guys so much for listening, it really means a lot to me and Evan, and is the reason, really, that we are continuing with a second season at all. So join us again next time as we keep investigating what this big experiment we like to call humanity is all about. Like the dancer to continue the adventure.